0: Open our Bibles. We're back in Luke 22 this morning, so make your way over there. We'll be in verse 35, starting uh, Luke 22, verse 35. Uh, and as you're doing so, I, I want you to take a moment and and think for a moment of the emotionally darkest place you've ever been. I know that's not fun, but just you don't want you to go there right now. But just think about it for a moment—a a time when you were in great pain or discouraged, maybe even felt a moment of despair. Have you ever? felt alone in your suffering, ever sat just thinking about how your worst fears just came true or you feared your worst fears were about to come true, and maybe it's, it's, it's when you realize that the one thing that you've always longed for, God was not going to let you have, or the one thing that you most, was most beloved to you, you was going to be taken for you, from you. Maybe you just felt trapped, like there was no way out. Or maybe you you, you just experienced what's often called the dark night of the soul that is just filled with existential anxieties. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that's what Jesus experienced in this night, not at all. He certainly didn't experience despair. But I do believe emotionally dark times are as close that you and I have ever been or will ever get to feeling the anguish that our Lord felt on this night in this garden. And so let's, let's... I mean, if you haven't read ahead, you're wondering what's up. Let's just go ahead and read uh, Luke 22, beginning in verse 35. Sorry, Luke 32, verse 39. It's Jesus here at the beginning. And he came out and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation... And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood, falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, as we glimpse into this dark night of anguish in the life of our Lord, grant us through the Holy Spirit enlightenment to understand your word and to be be formed by it. May we learn the depth of your love and the place of prayer in our life this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So there is a particular place that Jesus and his disciples have been going each night during this week when they're in Jerusalem. Uh, Judas, of course, knows this place. We're going to see that next week. Uh, For now, though, Jesus and his disciples have walked out of the city of Jerusalem. They've gone through the gates on the east side, and they've gone down into the Kidron Valley. And then they've begun to come up on the Mount of Olives, or Mount Olivet it might be called. Uh, just to the lower portion, and, and they're in a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, you might have noticed in our passage, Luke does not use the word Gethsemane. Uh, I don't know exactly why. Uh, I don't know if it's because he can't spell it like many of us can't spell it. I, who knows what the real reason for it, but he doesn't do it. We, we know it's the Garden of Gethsemane from the other gospel accounts, though, uh, and so we're certain of that. Now, Gethsemane is this, this Hebrew word that means olive press, uh, sometimes it's used for olive oil, but olive press is what it technically means. And, and at this time, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is a garden, or what we would probably call a grove, right? Lines and lines of uh, of trees that have been intentionally planted and been growing there for hundreds of years, olive trees. Uh, it was probably a commercial olive business at this time that somebody owned and was running, and that's where they were spending their, their nights, where they were camping out. It, it still exists today. You can actually go to the Garden of uh, Gethsemane, as you won't surprise you, it's a tourist attraction today with sidewalks, so a little different, but you can still walk through this garden and, and there are still olive trees that you can look at uh, that maybe not the same trees as when Jesus was there, but in the same way. It would have looked similar to the way he would have seen it. Uh, so now, Jesus knows that he's very close to the cross, he's very close to being arrested, to being tried, to being. Right, crucified upon the cross, he, he's feeling the weight of this, and, and do you see what he does when he feels the weight of this? He, he gathers his closest friends, he tells them to pray, asks them to pray, and then Jesus goes and he prays to, to his Father, to God. Now, we, we don't see it in, in Luke, but in Matthew, Matthew tells us that Jesus invites three of his disciples to come a, a little bit closer. They're able to maybe hear a little better, see what's going on. It's the same three disciples that uh, were invited to experience the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Uh, and now Jesus exp- uh, tells them all, right? He, he instructs all of them saying, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, the specific temptation here is most likely the sin of cowardice, right? Or you might say... Fearfulness, the, the very sin that they are going to commit as soon as Jesus gets uh, arrested later, later on. M- maybe they, you know, which makes you wonder could they have remained strong if, 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 if they had done what Jesus had actually instructed them and instead of giving into sorrow and exhausted and spent that time in prayer? We'll never know. We know that it was God's sovereign plan that it goes the way it goes, but, but maybe, right? And, and so Jesus goes a, a stone's throw away from them. That's not the most precise of measurements. Uh, We did a little research yesterday. According to Sadie's ability to throw a stone about this big, it's at 30 feet. Um, Depends on how big your stone is, right? So it's a little different. Uh, The whole idea here, though, is that he is is separate. He's on his own, but he's not that far. You could overhear him. They hear things he's saying. And and one of the things we know from all this is that Jesus, even though he's alone, actually prays out loud to his Father. Now, I, I want you to see here how our Lord models for us what we are to do in times of trouble. Look at the end of verse 41. He knelt down and he prayed. Jesus prayed. Now, if you have grown up in the church, don't let that blow past you you're like, oh, yeah, of course he prayed. Of course, that's what you do. Jesus prayed. He found himself in trouble and he prayed. People, you know, typically stand, uh, prayed standing up at this time. It's interesting that Jesus kneels and prays here. It, it probably communicates something to us about the absolute... Just how spent he is at this moment, the exhaustion he feels that he, sa- that he kneels down to pray to the Father. And, and listen, praying to God in times of trouble is, is, is not a new idea. Among many other places in the scripture, we see in Psalm 50, verse 15, that God says, call upon me in the day of trouble. Later, James, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing the book of James, in James five thirteen says this, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray we see that Jesus was never ashamed, never embarrassed, never too self-reliant to go to his Father and to seek his comfort, to seek his care, to go to him in prayer. Uh, to our own shame, if we're honest, most of us go to God in prayer only as a last resort, only after we have tried to find medical solutions, financial solutions, or something more practical in, in the way that we understand it. Christian Prayer should be our first response always, not, not our last resort. When, when you think of the, the first friend that you want to go to in a time of trouble, and you know we all got this, right? I just want to speak to someone and tell them, you know one of the first people or the first person you should think of is your Lord. He knows it already, but that's the first person we should go to and speak to. In verse 42, we see Jesus intimately address God, the fa- God as Father, and then he asks God for something specific. You see it there? Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, it's, it's helpful for us to realize that Jesus doesn't name it and claim it in this moment. Jesus doesn't demand that God do what he says or, or put any kind of uh, ultimatum on this. You do what I say, or I, you know, I'm not going to believe in you, or anything of that nature. Instead, he asks in humility... Father, if you are willing. See, in this process here, as we see Jesus pray to the Father, we we become witnesses to this this mystery of the incarnation. Jesus is is not half God and half man, as we uh, uh, wrongly sometimes tend to think of him. He is fully man. He is fully God. Jesus is one person, but he has two natures. One of his natures is divine. One of his natures is human. We, we can distinguish this using words, but at no point can we actually divide Jesus into his humanity and into his godliness, divinity. All right? Uh, what we observe here is that Jesus has a human will. There is something in his humanity uh, that he does not wish to go through. Namely, Jesus desires this cup to be removed, to not drink it. That's his preference he would rather not be the case right on some level he's wanting to know is is there another way god father to accomplish redemption for sinners maybe you've wondered that yourself could we just couldn't you just dismiss this why does jesus have to go to the cross We couldn't dismiss it. Of course God can't dismiss it. His glory, His justice are at absolute stake, and and so a perfect sacrifice by a perfect man must be made. So why does Jesus ask for this cup to be removed? Do you even understand what this cup is a symbol of? Let me try to explain that to you. The cup's a a symbol. It was used very often in the Old Testament. A, a, A cup was a man or a woman's portion in life. These are the things that you have been dealt, we might say, Right? whatever good or difficult circumstances or challenges that God has given a person. Sometimes the cup is used positive in the Old Testament. You, you remember those well-traveled words of Psalm 23, verse 5? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. And then what? My cup overflows. More commonly, though, throughout the Old Testament, the cup is this symbol of, of God's righteous judgment. Psalm Eleven six. So, let the rain. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulphur, and scorching wind shall be a por- their portion. Uh, sh- sorry, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Or Isaiah fifty one seventeen. When, when God's people were suffering for their sins, and the prophet says, Wake yourself! Wake yourself! Stand up, Jerusalem! You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. I'll give you one more, but there's many more examples. Uh, When when God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 25, 15 to take from my hand the cup of the wine of wrath and to make the nations drink it. It's this idea of God's judgment, God's wrath. And so when when Jesus here is asking his father if possible to remove the cup, Jesus means his crucifixion. He means his suffering. He means his death. He he means the forsakenness that he's going to experience in the hours ahead. That's Jesus' portion. That's what he's come to do. To swallow the wrath of God that would otherwise be waiting for God's chosen people. And so then after making this request and in his humanity, our Lord submits to the will of his Father. Saying there in the second half of verse 42, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, I want you to be careful you don't do that thing that we're, we're so prone to do. Where we think, yeah, but, but this is Jesus. Right? He's the Son of God. It would be so much easier for him to do that. It, it was not easier for Jesus. Remember, he, he too is a man, fully and truly. He, he feels the weight of all of this. It's not that he's exempt from it in, in, in any sense. And so, in this olive grove, Jesus feels the weakness of his own humanity. He feels the, the physical exhaustion, the mental stress, the emotional anguish, Jesus faced all of that and nevertheless, Jesus continued forward to the cross because it was the will of his Father and because there's no other way to have redeemed you from your sin. There is no alternate route. The cross was the only way to redeem you. Now Jesus willingly drank the cup of wrath that my sin and your sin deserves and and with his words and his actions that follow, right? These aren't just empty words he follows through with this and, and Jesus models for us what humility and submission to the Father looks like. It shouldn't surprise us that, that Jesus submitted himself to the will of his Father. That's what he's always done. We've seen this all throughout the Gospels. John six thirty eight. Jesus even says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me, who is, of course, God the Father. Jesus is always about the Father's will. Now, Let us not miss how Jesus here models for us what our own prayers ought to look like, especially when we find ourselves in in trouble, when we find ourselves in a desperate situation, a a moment of darkness. The the first thing is that in times of trouble, right, we've already said it, but we're to go to God in prayer. You you ever realize how often that is the prescription that we are given in Scripture? You remember Hannah? When she was unable to conceive a child with her husband, she goes to the temple and, and she prays to God and uh, Eli mistakenly thinks she's drunk, uh, because, and she's mumbling to herself, and she tells him in 1 Samuel 1.15, she, she says, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. When you think of Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah learns that the walls of Jerusalem and the gates have been destroyed and knocked down, uh, and in Nehemiah 1, 4, 4, and 5, he says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Well, you remember Jehoshaphat, right? When, when facing this dreadful military threat, the, the, the first thing he does in 2 Chronicles twenty twelve is to pray, and he says this, O oh Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He's trusting the Lord. He's going to the Lord. And here in our passage today, we, we see Jesus Christ, our, our Lord, the Son of God. We, we see Him in this time of anguish. And where does He go? He, he goes to the Father in prayer. And so I'll ask you are, you, are you facing a dark night of the soul? Are you ashamed or anxious? Are you in great pain or grief? Are you discouraged or desperate or in agony of any sort? If, if you are, the first place you go is to God in prayer. The second thing we, we witness is that his prayer is honest and vulnerable. It's not as a, a soldier to a commander in this time, but rather as a son to a father. Jesus has communicated that what God is asking him to do is terrifying, and, he, and he's asking precisely, right, if there's any other way, then please get me out of this situation. Remove this cup. And so we learn to be vulnerable in our prayers. Don't, don't just say what you think God wants to hear. You can be honest with God who, through Christ, is also your father. You can say, God, I am, I'm afraid of this diagnosis. I'm terrified. You can say that these marriage problems I'm going through are weighing too heavy on me, God. You can say whatever's really going on in your life in prayer to God. You, you can ask you know, you can cry and ask why as you, as you pour out your heart in prayer to God. And you can ask exactly what it is you long for. We can do that. The third lesson on prayer here is to trust God by submitting to his will. It's probably the hardest aspect. Again, it shouldn't surprise us that, that this is how Jesus teaches us, right? Because that's exactly how he taught us to pray. We, we said it earlier in the service, right? Our, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What is it? Finish it. Thy will be done. To, to genuinely pray that the will of God would be done is the highest expression of faith because in doing so, we submit ourselves to the absolute sovereignty of God. In doing so, we are exercising faith that says, you know, I trust you, God. I trust you no matter what, whether the answer is yes or no, I absolutely trust you. J.C. Ryle says, submission of will like this, is one of the brightest gracious which can adorn the Christian character. Again, it's it's good, it's right to to tell God what we truly desire, but even the good things that we desire must always be surrendered to the far superior wisdom of our Heavenly Father's will, trusting Him. That can be hard, because we often want to say quite the opposite of Jesus here. We want to say, Lord, my will be done especially in the darkest of times. In submitting to God's will, we acknowledge there might be good reasons for the afflictions that we find ourselves suffering. In the case of Christ, it was accomplishing the redemption of God's elect people. It was accomplishing redemption. Now, your affliction is not accomplishing redemption. But it absolutely has some good purpose. God is using it for your good, for the good of others. Even if what your, uh, your affliction serves remains an absolute mystery to you in this life, that you don't know what it is, you can know, you can trust that there is good that God is working in this. And we know this, right? As Romans 8.28 tells us, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. James Montgomery Boyce was a, a pastor at 10th Pres in, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, was well known on the radio. Was such an amazing instrument of the Lord for His own glory. And so it came as quite a surprise when, in the spring of 2000, he learned that he had inoperable liver cancer. It's the spring that year, right? And by June 15th of that year, he was dead. In his last sermon, he spoke of prayer, and he had this to, to say. He said, if I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel. We have talked about the sovereignty of God here forever. God's in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It is not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and so, it somehow slipped by. God does everything according to his will. We've always said that. But what I've been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. God's in charge, but he doesn't care. But it's not that. God is not only the one who is in charge. God is also good. Everything he does is good. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and to move forward. And who knows what God will do? We accept it. We bow ourselves to the will of the Lord. We trust that he is good, even when we are terrified of what might lie ahead for us. Let's look again to Christ in the garden here. We, we know from the rest of the scripture that it is not the will of the Father to remove this cup from Jesus. He continues on to the cross and is crucified and still, God does, in verse 43 here, send an angel to minister to Jesus. Here, near, near the end of his earthly, you know, mission, uh, Jesus, right, our God sends him an angel to minister to him in the same way that he sends one at the very beginning when he's, when he's being tempted by the devil in the, in the desert. It, it's a mystery to us. What what wonders and strength may have resulted from this ministering angel in this moment, and yet Jesus remains in agony. It doesn't remove everything that you might think it's going to do here. And so he prays more earnestly, and his agony is so great that he begins to sweat blood. Now, today we have a medical term for what actually occurred here. It's called hematidrois, and I'm sure I just botched that massively, but it's called that. It's this idea of this extreme anguish or physical strain where uh, the capitulary capillary. Yeah? Capillary blood vessels. They dilate and and they burst and it mixes with sweat and and so that someone actually begins to sweat blood out of the pores of their skin. That's what's going on with Jesus if we want to give it a a medical term. Now, I, I find it interesting that this is what happens because, like we mentioned before, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. That means olive press. And an olive press works by bearing so much weight, so much pressure between these stones of, upon these olives that they just bleed oil out. You couldn't accomplish with your hand what these presses can do. And here is our Lord under so much weight, so much pressure, so much anguish that, that His body is sweating blood. Now I want to consider a little further, further what exactly is the cause of this great anguish of our Lord? Because I, I don't want us to mistakenly think He's afraid of death. That's not what's going on. It's not about physical death. Throughout history, many Christians have bore the weight of physical death and and done so with absolute peace, have done so in absolute comfort. That's not what's going on here. The agonies that Jesus is experiencing here is the weight and the burden of, of the world's sin, imputed sin on him, and ultimately the deep sense that he has the wrath of God against that sin now on him. It is targeted on him, and he knows that. In this garden, this this olive grove, we we see just how much our Lord suffered for our salvation. In his humanity, Jesus is is dwelling on the horror of the cross, and, and this is greatly magnified by his knowledge that On the cross, he is going to be forsaken by God. He is going to experience the full weight of divine anger on sin, despite the fact that he himself is utterly innocent, perfectly holy, that he is truly righteous, and yet this is the cup for him to drink. While on the cross, Jesus will pray aloud saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine how, how dreadful this is for Jesus who has from all of eternity actually lived in the, the unbroken incredibly intimate closeness with his Father. And he's going to experience this forsakenness. Further in Galatians 3.13 we learn what Jesus accomplishes for us by willing submitting himself to the will of his Father. It says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is all the fulfillment of Isaiah three six, which we touched on last week. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have, t- we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You, you see, the most glaring lesson that we learn of Gethsemane is not that Jesus suffers with us, although that is, that is true, we know from Scripture, but that Jesus has suffered for you. And so while Jesus is, is in anguish here, what do you see his disciples are doing right they're not praying are they that's for sure look at verse 45 and when he rose from prayer he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow one of the things i love here is even as he comes upon them and finds them an absolute failure to do what he's asked them to do he doesn't berate them right jesus doesn't say well y'all just think it prayer forget it Instead, Jesus again encourages them to pray. He goes right back to it again, telling them to pray that they may not lead fall into temptation. Did you, did you notice that this, this whole passage is bookended with these instructions of Jesus to his disciples that we pray that we not fall into temptation? Now, we cannot underestimate the importance of prayer in our spiritual life. We can't. So, where does this leave us, right? You and I, we, we live in a world that can cause us mus, much anguish. That's just reality. And so maybe today you find yourself concerned about the variants of the coronavirus or side effects of the vaccine. Maybe today you're wrestling with how to think biblically about racial issues that you're seeing in the media everywhere. Maybe you're, you're anxious about the moral decay of society as, as clear and obvious sin and increasingly is, is normalized and even celebrated within our culture. Maybe you're afraid the church is, is shrinking and that Christians aren't doing enough. Maybe you're worried about the economy under new leadership and what's going to happen with that. Maybe you're worried about your own health or the, wealth of, the health of someone that you care about. Maybe, maybe you're concerned about how to disciple your children well or how to care for your aging parents well. What are we to do with these anxieties? I'll tell you this, the, the world invites you to complain to gripe, to fearmonger, to panic, you know, just to get on Twitter or Facebook or whatever else and just rage, right? The world invites you to do that. The, the world invites you to escape through hours of video games or good books or binge watching Ted Lasso. The, the world invites you to forget it all for a little while through a time of just drunken bliss. Those are things the world invites you to, but the maker of the world and everything in it, including your soul, he invites you to come to him in prayer. To come to him and to answer that question, right? What are you afraid of? God desires to hear your honest concerns and to teach you to trust him, even if the way forward is absolutely terrifying. He invites you to come and pray. So, what are you going to do, Christian? What are you going to do while the world is raging? Are you going to pray? Are you going to talk to God who is sovereign and who loves you and hears you and, and cares for you? Church, when we face times of trouble, we, we do not panic. We don't panic, we pray. When was the last time you, you kneeled down or you, you went on a walk and, and you just prayed to the Lord about the world around you? But all the weights on your shoulders? We just spoke to him. Maybe out loud, right? Someone wanders upon you. They think you're crazy. That's okay. You're talking to your Lord. When was the last time you did that? When you just spoke to God about the pressures weighing on you, about your, your deficiencies, your so-called deficiencies? When, when was the last time in prayer you just trusted God and submitted your will to his will. Finally, Christian, if you are to understand Gethsemane at all, I want you to understand that Jesus loves you even more than you probably imagine. It's a reality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this glimpse into our Lord's prayer life. This picture of anguish Jesus endured for us and in submission to your will. Jesus, thank you for suffering for our souls, for dying for our sin, for drinking the cup of wrath that we deserve. Please give us grateful hearts. Please teach us to submit our wills to your will even when it means the road of suffering is ahead for us. May we learn to do it because we trust you. May we learn to do it because we we long for you to be glorified in our lives. We long for the, the propagation of the glorious gospel, where, the gospel in which we have found hope and rest and salvation. Lord, teach us to, to pray, to desire it, to set apart times for it, to come to you and speak to you, knowing you hear us and desire for us to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.